Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be preaching today from the Gospel reading I read a few minutes ago. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we hear your word to us today, fill us with your Holy Spirit and grow us as forgiving and merciful people as you have been forgiving and merciful to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you would have seen the story in the newspapers or on the news during the week of one of the people who was unable to attend their loved one's funeral due to being in quarantine and that sort of thing. We all know these events are happening in our country at the moment. But in the reporting, one of the things that stood out to me in this particular story and in the way it was reported was that they picked out one particular line from a letter that this lady had written to her government, to her premier, in fact. The line that they picked out was that the person said, I will never forgive you. I will never forgive you. It was quite intriguing to me that this person felt the need to use that sort of phrase to make her point so powerfully, it was intriguing to me as well that the media picked up on this as a particularly significant way to express what she was feeling. Now, we can understand the emotional tumult that people are in in these sort of situations when they can't attend their loved one's funerals at the moment, of course. But it occurred to me as I heard this phrase how different it sounds to the way our Lord Jesus teaches us to live as his disciples. Where not only are phrases like, I will never forgive you, not part of our vocabulary, but when Peter asks Jesus, how many times should I forgive, Lord? As many as seven? Jesus says, not seven, but 77. In other words, never stop. Never give up. There is no limit to the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus in his kingdom. And yet it can be so, so hard, can't it, to forgive. Why is that? And where do we get the power to grow as people who forgive? This is what Jesus addresses in the parable that takes up the bulk of our text that we'll look more closely at now. And as we look at this, we'll see first forgiveness and mercy received, second forgiveness and mercy withheld, and third forgiveness and mercy lost. So first there is forgiveness and mercy received. Just notice that Peter's question is about forgiving others, forgiving a member of the church, forgiving a brother or sister. Jesus' conclusion right at the end is also about forgiving others. But then when Jesus begins to give his parable to illustrate what he's saying, notice that he starts somewhere else. He doesn't start with the forgiveness and mercy we are to show to others. He starts with the forgiveness and mercy we receive. From God, because that's where the power lies to grow in this life of forgiveness. 
So Jesus compares his disciple to a person, a servant who owes a king a debt. And it's a big debt, we'll come back to that. It's a debt which would end up having him and his whole family sold into slavery. And so the person pleads with the king to have patience and the king has compassion on this servant, has pity, he forgives the debt and he lets him go. That's the basic picture. But the real punch to the parable is in the quantity of the debt. So it says that the man owes 10,000 talents. We're not familiar with a talent though, so what is this talking about? We use that word in a particular way, but a talent was originally a form of currency. It's basically a sum of money, you could say. And it's a little hard to work out across centuries what exactly this equated to, but everyone agrees that it was big. And the usual estimates that scholars give range from somewhere between 15 to 20 years worth of wages. Now just hear me very carefully again. One talent was worth somewhere between 15 to 20 years worth of wages. And this guy, it says, owed 10,000 of those. Now, it's been a little while since I've had to do maths, but by my calculations, that means somewhere between 150,000 and 200,000 years worth of wages. I believe the technical financial term for this is zillions and squillions. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? This is absurd. This is crazy. This is like working for Bill Gates and somehow managing to bankrupt him. This is an impossible situation to imagine in this world. And that's the point. It's not about this world. This is about the kingdom of heaven. This is about us before God. And our Lord Jesus wants to impress upon us that in fact our spiritual condition before God, apart from Jesus Christ, is far, far worse than we imagine. There is nothing we could ever do, nothing we could ever give to make up for this spiritual debt that we have. Nothing we can do on our own. It's only the sheer unfathomable mercy of God in Christ Jesus that allows us to be forgiven and free from this debt. I wonder if you've ever been in significant debt. Perhaps some of us are right now. It's worth thinking about that experience because as far as I can tell in the Bible, you never really get a definition of forgiveness, but you get pictures like this. It's like being in debt. Most people can resonate with the experience in one way or another, and although some of us handle it better than others, overall it can be a pretty powerful force in one's life, can't it? That's why we have all those ads on TV and the radio about getting out of debt. The debt can hang over your head. It can keep you up at night. It can affect relationships. It can influence many different decisions that you make. But then on the positive side, I wonder if you've ever had a significant debt forgiven. 
I've had this in very small ways in my life, small personal loans to family members and towards the end of many repayments, the person says, let's call it closed. The debt's cancelled. Or perhaps you can just imagine when you finally got out of debt, that last repayment on the mortgage or the school fees or something like that. If you just think about that experience, even in just small ways in our life, it can be quite transformative, can't it? Everything can begin to look different. All of a sudden, possibilities open up. There's this utter relief of being free. And Jesus says, your God, the King of the universe, out of sheer mercy, has forgiven you a spiritual debt the size of which is incomprehensible. And of course, we who know the end of the gospel narrative, we know that it's the one who tells the parable who comes to pay the price. It's the Lord Jesus who comes to give his life as a ransom for many. He paid the price for our forgiveness, not gold or silver, but his holy, precious blood, his innocent suffering and death. This is where it begins. Forgiveness and mercy received. But then there's forgiveness and mercy withheld. So now we're back to the actual situation of Peter's question, forgiving a brother or sister. And Jesus is giving us a picture now of what it's like when we who have received this extraordinary mercy and forgiveness of God do not pass that on to others or in fact pass on the opposite. So he says the same servant who has been forgiven the debt comes across another servant now who owes him a much smaller debt of 100 denarii and he begins to choke him. I think you're meant to picture the absurdity of this scene that a man who has just been forgiven a debt of maybe 200,000 years worth of wages has his hands around the neck of a man who owes him a debt thousands and thousands of times less. But it gets worse because the one in debt pleads with this guy to have patience using almost exactly the same words as he had just used to the king. But instead of showing mercy and forgiveness, he throws him into prison. And Jesus says, this is you, Peter. This is you, Christian disciple. When you who have received the mercy and forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus withhold that same mercy from those who wrong you. Now, I want to point out, though, that 100 denarii is not nothing either. We do know even more precisely that a denarius did seem to be the common wage for one day's worth of work. So a debt of 100 days worth of work, let's say three months wages or so, on its own that's still significant, isn't it? It's just that it's insignificant compared to the other debt. But I wonder whether this detail in Jesus' teaching is also important because when we struggle to forgive our brothers and sisters for the way in which they hurt us, 
Jesus would seem to be saying that it's not just a matter of, oh, it's no big deal, just get over it. He's not saying that those sins and those hurts are not real. No, 100 denarii, three months' wages. Our sins against each other do hurt and cause damage. And that's why Jesus outlined those steps he did that we heard last week to do something about it. It's also worth saying that forgiveness does not mean that this sort of behaviour that's happened is okay. It doesn't mean we tolerate it in the Christian community. It doesn't even mean there aren't consequences for this behaviour that is forgiven. But here Jesus is dealing, if you like, with the bottom line. Whether you can forgive the person when they've sinned against you. When you feel the need to hold on to that right to be vindicated and even to take revenge, Jesus says, when you're in that place, you need this perspective. To see this sin in light of the massive debt you have been forgiven by God. Because then Jesus says, there is no comparison. Naturally, we just don't operate this way, do we? The natural default approach of our sinful human hearts is to want to seek revenge, not to offer forgiveness. You see this in children from a very early age, don't you? That indignation that arises within us when we fear we've been wronged and justice has not been done. And even a little child will just watch and wait for his or her opportunity to get back at him, to take that toy, to ruin that picture, to give him one behind the ears when mum and dad aren't looking. And the main difference that I can see as adults is that we're just a bit more sophisticated as to how we go about it. I've mentioned before once in a sermon here on Cain and Abel, I think, how it's worth thinking about this phrase we have in English, to nurse a grudge. Just what a vivid and really terrible image that is. That we have these grudges against other people. We have these feelings of anger and resentment and a refusal to forgive and we handle those as a nursing mother handles a baby. We feed them, we care for them, we hold them close and we don't want to let them go. This is us and Jesus is about to warn us in the strongest possible terms not to continue down that path because there's forgiveness and mercy received, there's forgiveness and mercy withheld but then there's forgiveness and mercy lost. The scandalous behaviour of this unforgiving servant, it, it gets the attention of the other servants. They're distressed by what they see and we're not told exactly why, but I'm reminded of the nature of community here and how forgiveness between one person and another is never just about one person and another. It always affects other people. There's always a communal dimension, either positively or negatively. And so they report to the king. And the king, who was previously 
forgiving and merciful to an unimaginable extent, he shows now that his mercy is never to be presumed on, never to be taken for granted. And so the king says, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I've had mercy on you? And in anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he should pay his entire debt. So my heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. You get the feeling Jesus is pretty serious about this, don't you? Unforgiveness and refusal to show mercy, it's a spiritually dangerous game, Jesus says. And if it isn't bad enough that it tears marriages apart and tears families apart and tears congregations apart, if it isn't bad enough that it scandalizes others in their faith and forms a barrier to hearing the gospel, if all of that isn't bad enough, Jesus says, it can also lead to you losing the forgiveness and mercy of God you first received. That's sobering stuff. Forgiveness and mercy, it is like the air we breathe. You can do nothing yourself to make yourself spiritually alive. That forgiveness and mercy must come to you from God. You receive it in Christ Jesus. You breathe it in, but you can't live holding your breath. And if you hold your breath for long enough, you will die. As we breathe it in, so we must breathe it out. I invite you now to reflect very personally and practically. Think of a person that you have found it hard to forgive. Think of an unreconciled relationship in your life. Bring to mind a grudge that you may have been nursing perhaps for a very long time. Reflect on the mercy and the forgiveness God has shown to you in Christ Jesus and hear your Lord's call to forgive your brother or sister from the heart. As we pray the Lord's Prayer today and we say, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us, have that person, that situation in mind. And perhaps then there's some practical step you can take this week or this afternoon toward making this forgiveness a reality in your relationship. Perhaps it's a phone call, a visit, a letter. Just one step. One step towards forgiveness or coming from forgiveness. Don't hold on to the anger. Don't hold on to the bitterness and the unforgiveness. Be tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. There's forgiveness and mercy received. That's where it all begins. There's forgiveness and mercy withheld. That's the challenge. There's forgiveness and mercy lost. That's the tragedy. The words, I will never forgive, are not part of the Christian vocabulary. 
Jesus came to give his very life to make forgiveness possible. As many as seven times, Jesus? No, I tell you, 77 times. God granted to us for Jesus' sake. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.